This is Open to Hope Radio, featuring Dr. Gloria Horsley and her daughter, Dr. Heidi Horsley, coming to you on behalf of the Open to Hope Foundation, dedicated to those who are looking for hope after loss. Now, here's Dr. Gloria. Welcome to Grief Relief. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, with my co-host and daughter. Dr. Heidi Horsley. Well, Heidi, we've got one of your uh, New York area people from New Jersey on the show today. And also, we're going to hear a little bit of thoughts about one of the professors at Columbia, George Bonanno, that we like. So um, anyway, why don't you introduce Jill Simolo? I'd love to, Mom. Um, We are going to talk today, like you said, about resilience in a time of grief. And Jill is no stranger to loss because she lost... Seven, she lost four family members in 17 months. Um, and I'm looking right now. She, Jill, she lost her husband, her younger sister, her mother, and her mother-in-law. So within 17 months, award-winning journalist and author Jill Smolo lost her husband, sister, mother, and mother-in-law. Jill is a senior writer for People Magazine, desiring to help others. She used her experience to write four funerals and a wedding, Resilience in a Time of Grief. Jill then became a grief and transition coach, helping clients learn how to restore momentum to their lives. Welcome to the show, Jill. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. It's great to have you on, Jill. And I, uh, we were talking about the fact that you are of the baby boomer generation, and a lot of baby boomers are losing family members. But wow, did you ever lose a lot of family members in a short amount of time? I've really been I was really interested in reading your book and reading about the sweetness between you and your husband. I really enjoyed that part and he was an award uh, winning journalist himself, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Yeah, we actually met at Newsweek. We were a media couple. <laughs> the wow. boy next door. And so um he got uh leukemia, correct? Correct. And he was ill for how many years? Two? Was that right? It was two and a half years from his diagnosis to his death, and um, that uh, included, you know, uh, six months of rigorous chemo treatment, and then he had a stem cell transplant, and mm-hmm. and then there was this, you know, up and down as his health fortunes got better and got worse and got better and got worse. Mm-hmm. And you and you document and talk about this in your book. It, it's very moving. And your relationship. And your daughter. You have a daughter, Becky. And I want to read something you wrote in your book because I I think it's very interesting. You say in your book that through the last five years, neither my needs nor my behavior have matched the American cultural script for exhausted caregivers, brokenhearted widows, and grieving family members. So you did not match that model. In fact, with all this loss, that model kind of annoyed you, right? Yes, it, it did, because um, when Joe first got sick and everybody rushed in with their concern, while, while I appreciated the, the concern, at the same time, it was very exhausting. And then, um, you know, I needed really to focus on keeping my husband's spirits up and keeping my daughter's life steady. And then we went through this protracted illness, and um, during that period of time, my sister got got diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer, and my mother was getting increasingly ill, and my mother-in-law was aging and getting increasingly frail. And I needed to find those pockets that would rejuvenate my own energy and spirit. 
so the kind of relentless focus on how's Joe, how's Jill, how's Becky did not help. And I knew it was coming from a really well-intended place, but um, people were not hearing me when, when I would say, you know, let's talk about something else. <laughs> it was difficult. Well, I'm thinking also, Jill, I'm thinking, okay, when people are coming to us, it's almost like you have to reassure them. So it's energy going exactly. out of you. Yes, Heidi, them. that's it. Yes, I totally agree with that. I felt their worry and felt like I had to Mm -hmm. allay it, and I realized very quickly early on in Joe's illness, now I can't do that. I just, I I can't. So I tried to... That's taking a lot of energy from you. Yes. And, you know, and it's also extremely repetitive. And I I was trying to um, use the hours that I wasn't at the hospital to find you know, ways to rejuvenate myself so I could go back into his hospital room, you know, bringing, bringing ideas and news of the world and whatever back in because I was the only visitor allowed. Um, when you have leukemia, they, they decimate your, your immune system. He wasn't allowed visitors. So it was all up to me to bring any kind of life into that room. So it was imperative to me that I get my mind out of the hospital room when I was out of it and, and find things to bring to him. And it was very hard to make people understand that. Okay, now now Joe um, passes away at home, and four months after he dies, you are thinking, "Do I have to go through this stages of grief thing? Um, you know, what's my life going to be like?" Um, you had had a history of depression, I believe you said, and you, you know, did not want to get in that place. What's going to happen? And you found a book by uh, Dr. George Bonanno that reassured you that you didn't have to grieve the the way, the pattern that was seen. Is that correct? Yes. More, more important to me when I discovered Dr. Bonanno's book, up until that point, I kept hearing, you know, friends who were meaning to be supportive were saying things to me like, oh, you're amazing. And to me that said there was something wrong about my grief. There was something weird about my grief. It wasn't that I wasn't experiencing deep sorrow. It was that I was just very determined to keep moving, <laughs> you know, to, to get back to work, to get my daughter out, to, to just keep our lives moving. So I thought, um, you know, am I, am, am I doing this wrong? And in my worst moments, I thought, oh, my God, is it possible I didn't love him as much as I thought I did, which was just, you know, completely unthinkable. So when I came across the other side of sadness, what I discovered was, oh, no, no, I'm totally normal. More than half of all American mourners are what they call resilient. And when I listened to the comments by people in this book, they sounded just like me. And that was a tremendous relief. And what it did was it, I internalized it as permission to, okay, I'm going to grieve the way I need to. And when I, when I came out the other side, I felt like I wanted to kind of put a face on this resilience. I, I, I very much want to help open up this emotional repertoire that Americans think go with grief. So that I, was I love why this I idea, Jill, and it was almost like you were honoring his life by living yours. And like you said, everybody grieves differently. So, I mean, for you... This was what it looked like, but yet you had been, I mean, we've been told, okay, yes, everyone grieves differently, but they're always kind of very emotional and very, you know, I, I like this idea, Mom, of just having a whole different way of looking at the whole grief process. Well, this is what was so fascinating about Bonanno's research was that, um, and this is over 20 years of study, he found mm-hmm. that 
well over 50% of mourners don't, they don't experience stages. That was, that was never the deal. That Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's idea of stages actually had been based on observations of the dying not the bereaved. Right. Yeah, there's been some uh, look that even people don't necessarily even go through those stages. A lot of people aren't angry, and they're kind of wondering, why aren't I angry? Because I'm supposed to, you know, and other people are saying, well, you should be angry. And, you know, that's not the way everyone responds. Well, that that's exactly right. And I'm sure there were people around me who were polite enough not to say it, but thought, oh, she must be in denial. But I, I wasn't in denial. I was very, very clear my husband was gone. What Bonanno's research showed is that most people, or resilient people, experience their grief in waves, that, 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 that it, 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 the mood oscillates, and that even from the very earliest days of grief, while you feel this tremendous sorrow, you can also take a moment to enjoy talking to Gloria and Heidi, and then, then you go back to your sadness, but you're, you're, you're oscillating in and out of it, and during those moments when you can get out of it, that's what replenishes you and helps you. And let me mention that, because you talk a little bit about this in the book, and Heidi and I have talked to, about it before, having different kinds of friends. You know, uh, some friends won't even be able to handle your grief, but then there are friends who don't, they don't exactly handle it, but what they do is make you laugh, and they take you fun places. And we say to people, I mean, take the friends that, you know, they're going to do different things for you. That is so true, and I actually... Um, in the earliest m- months of grief, I totally gravitated to the people who could make me laugh. It was just something I needed. It helped. You know, the the other thing, uh, Heidi, and I wanted to make sure we mentioned was and talked about a little bit was depression versus grief. Because um, you, I, I think, you know, well, Heidi, talk about the people that you've had in therapy that have grief, the difference between grief and depression. Well, it- Lately, I've just had, I've had a few people lately in my practice, Jill, that have said to me what they were surprised about was they've had deaths of family members. And what surprised them the most is that it feels different than clinical depression because they have a history of clinical depression. And right. it wasn't that intense 24, you know, for them it wasn't so intense 24 hours a day. There were times they were grieving and sad, but there were other times where they kind of, it was easier to take a break and move out of those areas. Exactly. I, I've had two clinical depressions in my life. They were both contained mm-hmm. episodes. And my biggest concern was exactly that, getting into clinical depression, because I knew if that happened, um, I, I would lose myself. And if I did that, I would be of no use initially when, for my husband when he got sick and then for my daughter when he died. Uh, mm-hmm. I did not land up going into depression, and it was different. I, there was never a minute where I wasn't aware of how sad I was, but I could at the same time, you know, go out and enjoy a walk with a friend or watch a movie and laugh. I was able to get out of my my mind, you know, out of my head. That is such a good point, and, and we're always talking about the difference between depression and grief, and, you know, saying, here here's an example. If they walked in the room right now, and if they hadn't died and they came in your room, how would you feel? And, of course, I'd feel happy. And if you're a depressed person, you know, it's just not that easy to, to move something in and out. But there was one other thing I, I noticed when I was thinking about your book, and that that is that of all the deaths you had, they were anticipated, and I think that a sudden death, like um, like happened to us, where somebody, a 17-year-old, gets killed immediately and you get the phone call, it's a little different because there's an, a physical assault on the body that is very quick. 
you know, you feel like you've hit a brick wall. You actually lose five pounds of water weight within a couple of days because of the adrenaline rush. I mean, there's some physical things that go on that are, you know, pretty horrendous. I, I, I can tell you two things in response to that, one that affirms exactly what you're saying. Um, I interviewed George Bonanno for People, and I asked him um, what, you know, what might stand in the way of resilience. Did it matter, you know, who you lost, if it was, you know, your parent, your child, your spouse, your sibling, or did age matter? And he, he said so far in their research, the one variable that, that would disrupt resilience was a, a sudden violent death. So that you know, mm-hmm. speaks exactly to what you just said, Gloria. The flip side, though, is I was talking not that long ago with a widow who lost her husband to a motorcycle accident. And she said she was so grateful he had died quickly and didn't suffer. So I said, well, that's funny because I feel grateful that I had time to, you know, say goodbye to my husband. And what it made me realize is, you know, we, we all reach for the silver lining that we have to, because how else are we going to go on? Yeah, exactly. Well, well, Jillian, it also makes me realize how important a narrative is, because I think when people, some people, like you said, get stuck in the trauma narrative, and other people rework the narrative and say, you know, at least it was quick, at least they didn't suffer, so that they're not caught up in that trauma narrative. Right. Right, exactly. And one one other thing I wanted to mention from your book that I thought was important for our audience, and that is about um, your daughter, how um, you wondered, should she go into therapy? You know, does she need to talk to somebody and that kind of thing? And you had a psychologist who was a friend, and uh, uh, I believe, and uh, talked to her and said, no, she seems to be okay. Um, that idea that our kids, you know, um, if they've lost somebody, they have to, they absolutely have to have therapy. That's an interesting proposition because when Scott was killed, I was a therapist, so I had my daughters go into therapy. And, and Heidi, um, you want to say something about that? Well, I'd like to say that while I am a therapist, I definitely do not think that therapy works for everyone. And I, I, I guess I would venture to say that I think that most people that have had a loss probably don't need it. Um, but, yes, I did go to a therapist, and it, for me it was very unhelpful because I felt like I was kind of caught in a trauma narrative, and I felt very much at a point in my life where I needed to tell my story, and he wanted me to talk about my childhood. And I really needed to talk about the present and how I was going to not only survive but thrive again. So I found that finding other people who had a loss was what helped move me forward rather than talking uh-huh. to him. Because you were how old then, Heidi? I was 20. But, but how good for you that you listened to your own instincts. This is one of the things that... Um, I think it's hardest for bereaved people. I mean, you're already feeling weakened. You're, you're vulnerable. And then people mm-hmm. come at you with these messages, and even if they don't feel right, you, feel, you know, it's, it's hard to push back and say, no, that doesn't feel right for me. That, that's a hard thing to do. And uh, that was really excellent that you were able to look at it and say, no, this isn't for me. It is interesting, too, Jill, because I have a lot of people, and my mom can probably identify with this, that will call me for the, a friend and say, my friend just had a child die or my friend just had a sibling die. I want them to come in and see you. And I'm always like, well, yeah. what, what do they want right now? <laughs> yeah. exactly. you know, they kind of want me to fix it somehow. I also wanted to mention something you said in the book, which I really liked, and that is, well, the difference between your mother at 79, she was ready to die, and Joe's mother at 95 was not ready. I mean, I have to say that made me kind of smile, because 95 <laughs> and you don't want to die. I mean, and you know, it's just different for everybody, isn't it? 
It really is. And, and, you know, their circumstances were very different. My mother had been on a downward slope for a long time, and she had had enough. And, uh, you know, our, my family, it, it wasn't easy, but, but we were able to respect her wishes, not try to push more doctors or, you know, more, more treatment her way. My, and, and she was very eager to have hospice care. My mother-in-law, by contrast, got furious at Joe for suggesting hospice care. She's like, you think I'm going to die? I was like, no, we just think this might be useful, you know. So, yeah, it, different people have different attitudes. So, and it sounds like the, your mother-in-law had a, a better quality of life, too, for a little, for longer. Yes. She was remarkably mm-hmm. vibrant and healthy for right up until the last, you know, last couple of years. So, uh, as a baby boomer, what do you suggest for our audience who are baby boomers that are losing their family members and moms and dads and that kind of thing? It's it's kind of tough, huh? It is tough. I'll tell you what helped with my family was that we had two people sick, and and as it turned out, they were dying. Um, one was that we were very clear about what each of them wished, what what their so-called death wishes were. Um, so that we could honor that, so that we didn't, you know, come rushing in at the last minute with, with care that they didn't want. Um, we, we were responsive to and supportive of the decisions they made about what they wanted with their care. Uh, they, at the same time, actually, both of them had set up where they were going to be buried, you know, the kind of memorial service they want. And my mother had even picked the clothes to be buried in. I mean, it, it might sound macabre, but, you know, when you're newly aggrieved, it's actually a great relief to know you're doing exactly what the loved one wanted. And then, and then the other thing was that we, we all really pulled together, those of us who survived it, my father, my two brothers, and I, we, we were able to work together. We were jumping between Vermont, where my sister was, and North Carolina, where my mother was, and, and my brothers and I were trying to be helpful in both places. We coordinated our efforts, and we even had a plan in place for, you know, we didn't know who was going to die first, and we knew my mother couldn't, would not be able to travel to Anne's funeral. Somebody would have to go to her. So my brothers and I put something in place beforehand, and, and, it, and it unfolded just as we planned it, and it's not that it was a good thing to not be together at that horrible moment, but it helped that we knew what we were going to do and, and could, could do it without any, any sort of friction. So, and you, um, how did you take care of yourself right after? And then I wanted to say you moved on, what, after three years and decided to start dating, and now you have remarried, which is four funerals and a wedding, Right. Right. Uh, actually, you know, I, I, I met the man I married uh, seven months after Joe died. Oh, we just okay. married, this, you know, a year ago. So we were together right. three years before we got married. But um, he was, his wife of 38 years died two months before Joe died. And we were very much on the same page with our grief and about our grief. And it formed, helped us form a very tight bond very quickly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, tell people how they can get your book, and um, do you have a website, and give them the information about you. Yes, please. My website is www.jillsmolo.com, and the book for funerals and a wedding are, you know, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your independent bookstores. Uh, and the subtitle of it is Resilience in the Time of Grief. 
And uh, I think that is just great that you're thinking about it in terms of that and giving hope to those people who've had losses. Thank you, and thank you for, for letting me come talk with you. Thanks, Jill. This is a great show. And thanks, everybody, for listening, and God bless. You've been listening to Open to Hope Radio, hosted by Drs. Gloria and Heidi Horsley. Like today's edition, all of our past programs are available on demand at opentohope.com, along with helpful articles, videos, resources, and links to help get you through the toughest time of your life. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter and sign up for our monthly newsletter. Again, that's opentohope.com. Check it out today. Then be sure to stop by next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time when we'll be posting another edition of Open to Hope Radio. Remember, others have been where you are. They made it through, and you can too, as long as you're open to hope.